It's truly a privilege. I might even feel it's an honor to be able to to share a few words, a few experiences in remembrance of one's teacher. This is today just by pure coincidence happens to one thinks it's pure coincidence, happens to be Father's Day. And one can't help but have that feeling about Lung Po, Lung Po Cha. The word Lung Po itself translates as Venerable Father. One can't help but feel the quality of, of parenthood. But it wasn't always that way. I remember in the beginning when I first arrived at Wat Bapong and the branch monasteries and had the wonderful opportunity to, to receive such fine teachings of which I was not yet able to fully comprehend and appreciate them the depth and importance of, if perhaps only a bit intuitively. One was still obsessed on a level of personality, obsessed with who one was and, and how to fully understand oneself, very much in the note of the American uh, obsession with psychology and therapy. In fact, for myself, meditation seemed to be just that, a means for understanding oneself, a greater happiness kind of therapy. And so in the beginning, whether it was Ajahn Chah not meeting my tastes or however one wants to describe it, one didn't feel, I didn't feel that 
sense of him being my father, my spiritual father, or my teacher. In fact, this led me to leave Wat Pong at one point, to go somewhere else, to look further. And this was a very important experience to do that for me. Someone very uh, stubborn by nature has to find out things the hard way. It was only by leaving that I found out what I left behind. And it wasn't by memories or uh, by hearing stories, but it was more coming up from within. That, that realization, that feeling, intuitive feeling that I'm not going forward. I'm leaving something very important behind that somehow left me feel less full. And so over the years, once returning to Wat Pong, to be with this man, that sense of him being a spiritual father only very gradually evolved. It's only to the degree that one's mind was willing to open up, be receptive to what was there. that this appreciation grew. And like with most American children, one tends to be spoiled and expect to receive all one needs without having that sense of reciprocation of of expressing one's gratitude in a sincere way. I remember how important it was to have the very physical opportunities to fill this black hole in in one's character, the opportunities to wash his feet. One was grateful for that. Or to wash his back, help him bathe, clean his kuti all the simple practical ways of doing something, because it wasn't the ability to, to experience it at a much deeper level. And he very much encouraged us, especially the Westerners, who he sensed really had this need, a very strong need, to learn to experience gratitude, to learn to open up and be receptive. So he much, very much encouraged us in subtle ways, to uh, continue to draw close to him. Remember one day he asked me, when I was bathing him, uh, had I ever given my father a bath, my my real father? And one couldn't help but find it absolutely ridiculous. (laughs) And he said, well, that's why you're not enlightened. 
And this was something very difficult for us to digest, to some of us anyway, the idea of, of all these forms of service. But once, it, once the taste of it was experienced, one realized the process, the obvious process of being able to be great, more greatly receptive to that which we give. Because his teaching was always fully available, just merely in his presence. And this seemed to be his greatest teaching. Not what he said or what he did, but simply who he was. And as Lumpur Sumato has so beautifully focused upon, it was the the ordinariness of who he was. Though there was great charisma and tremendous qualities, one never got the sense of those being overplayed or misused. But one couldn't help but make something special out of it because we make so much out of ourselves and he is my teacher. That makes him very special. In some of the stories about Lung Po Cha, especially those popularized to be printed in the commercial press, one very much gets that sense of specialness. It's so easy to transform simple incidents into uh, a Zen story, as we all do, each one of us. We, it's a great joy to talk about it one's teacher, especially Ajahn Chah, and one can't help but make these anecdotes into something very memorable. Where in a time, it could have been just a very ordinary passing event. And so, after being with him for some years, I began to notice that in my mind. It was difficult to accept him as just being an ordinary man. And I remember the day, this is going going to be a self-contradictory story, you'll see why in a moment. (laughs) I remember the day that the insight really dawned on me. We were walking in the village on alms round. I had the great privilege of Though being a very junior monk, there were very few monks walking with him that day, so I had the great privilege of walking directly behind him, which increased that sense of closeness. And noticing the mind really making something out of him, rising him up into the specialness as my teacher. That voice arose in me, which is, my God, well, he's just an ordinary person, just like him. That's, that's, we were just an ordinary person. And as soon as I thought that with its full sincerity, all of a sudden the arms round stopped. And 
Lung Po turned around and just for a moment flashed me a little smile and then turned around and kept walking. One always felt he was keen to take advantage of all opportunities to to offer the Dhamma. In fact, if one of the qualities I think I loved him most for was the purity of his being a teacher, a solid gold teacher, someone entirely dedicated to that alone. It seemed to be the whole function of his being. And of course this helped to make one very willing to see things in that light. rather than getting lost in in personality interaction one became gradually more willing to to take things as reflections and though the mirror was still very dusty just that very attitude was a very great gift to receive in fact if, if we alone can get we could develop this ability to to cultivate this attitude in our lives, to take our relationships, to take our life as a whole as an ongoing series of reflections. And we are drawing close to the Dhamma, just as we draw close to our teacher. He did draw us close, but there was always a a catch, because as one felt the magnetic attraction, one couldn't help but grab, take hold of, try to establish some very special personal relationship. And as soon as we were intent upon that, that's when the rug came out from underneath us. So he constantly do this dance with his disciples. Help us to draw closer, and then help us to see our attachment, our growing attachment. And this was out of great compassion that he allowed us to to learn and not yet get attached, overly attached. He seemed to realize that the most important thing was not what he had to give, <coughs> but just to simply help us to stand on our own two feet. help us to learn to practice 
without dependency upon another. And so he always pointed us to apply the practice to learn to trust more the arising of wisdom within ourselves. To use his example to somehow gradually, very fumblingly at first, what does this mean, this quality of wisdom? How is it possible for for people as foolish as ourselves to Live wisely. And he helped to, again, keep this from becoming a personal example. By giving a very special attention the importance of community, the importance of Sangha. He always raised Sangha up above himself. He always confided and consulted and gave everyone else in the community that sense that what was really important was not one person's decision but the community understanding. I remember one particular time when he returned from the West. It seemed as if his, his visit here had, had changed his whole perception of Thai, Thai people themselves. He was ready to do something he had never considered before in his, his life as a, as a teacher. In fact, there had been many attempts to <clears throat> try to use his name and fame and, and the power of his teaching to, to make monetary profit through making these little medallions which Thai people really put a great deal of importance in in grassroots Buddhism. And he would never allow that, except on one or two very rare occasions. And yet when he came back from the West, it was as though he realized the devotional nature so deeply ingrained in the Thai people. And he felt ready and willing to begin doing so. And then he consulted the Sangha. And though he himself was willing, the Sangha felt they had to protect his name and suggested, for, for the sake of protecting his name, protecting his reputation, the reputation of, of not getting involved in this very... Uh, mundane aspect of Buddhist um, devotion suggested that it wasn't done and he accepted that 
And this was a very important lesson for us as Westerners, to begin to sense very faultingly this importance to the quality of Sangha. For myself, it's nothing I'd ever come in touch with before in my life. And the years of training at Wat Pong under Ajahn Chah's guidance began to bring forth this very deep appreciation. How one's practice is not just for oneself and not just by oneself. And began to feel an organ in, within an organism. Or in a larger sense, just a cell in that organism. And this could be a source of great support and encouragement when that was needed. And it also could be a means of cultivating humility the willingness to work with pride. Of course, this was a very important emphasis in his teachings. As I believe Ajahn Sumita pointed out in his talk, that When one is putting so much attention to a form of spiritual practice, it so easily loses its way into pride in ways we never expect. It's obvious for everyone else to see it. But when we begin to lose our way, it's because we're blind to it. And so the constant refrain in his teaching was, don't worry about anybody else. Turn one's attention to oneself. Be aware of one's own actions. Be aware of one's own part in things. Be careful of judging. And this was pretty hard work at first. <clears throat> the critical mind found it so easy to carry the person next to you, the person you're um, living with, apart, to see what's wrong with them, to size them up. <clears throat> but then to gradually appreciate how this is the process of projection. How much easier it seems to make our lot to to see what's wrong with everybody else around us. 
gradually help us to develop a sense of responsibility. Willingness to be responsible for not just one's actions, but also one's perceptions. And in a way, this is a lot more difficult. Because we often trust our perceptions to be automatic and habitual. We often trust our own sense of judgment, trust our own hunches and intuition. But don't necessarily see where they're coming from. As you know, he had great charm, which he could turn on when needed. One found especially when parents of Westerners came to to visit. There is that special brightness which came from him. Again, in the simple and the ordinary things, and relating to these people from another country, which somehow won over the most recalcitrant intending parents, the people who most were determined to find there was something wrong going on here. This, was some, this has been something of a mystery to many people. How is it that he was able to, to breach that cultural barrier? How is it that he, born a Thai in Northeast Thailand, was able to communicate and relate to Westerners in a way which was genuinely meaningful when he didn't even know the language? I think what became clear to most of us before very long was that he wasn't a Thai. Though that's where his greatest strength of communication and offering the Dhamma was, one sensed he'd got beyond any sense of nationality. <clears throat> any sense of personal identity. And with that universality, was totally open to all who came to him. Whether they were the poor farmers down the road, or the privy council, the queen, 
through his not being anyone particular. The simple words he used seemed relevant to all. And those simple words are often very deceptive. In the beginning, one struggled quite a bit just to catch the language and the nuances of the meaning would slip away. But after a while, one realizes how the same statement can have a very special meaning for everyone in the room. When it's couched in that such a way where where it's coming from that space of universality. He seemed quite determined. To allow the Dhamma or the Dhamma Vinaya to become more available to us with infinite patience. We never felt one had to get anywhere, had to learn anything in particular, but one was given the space to <clears throat> more fully uncover one's own potential. And the, st- and the time to let things hit home in their own way. And the curious thing is that many of us who spent time with him in the early years had the same experience that he would say something to us in a very kind of um, that, that special tone of voice as if we were one of his, his um, own personal friends. And we knew that what he was trying to say was very relevant, very specially relevant to what I personally needed. So we'd listen very carefully. And he'd say it in such a way as if, as if we of course understood exactly what he said, and we'd laugh along with him, and didn't understand a word of what he meant. <laughs> but it registered. And maybe five years later, oh, that's what he meant. It took time.
but you seem to have the patience to to realize that these things have to grow in their own time. And this, of course, in turn helped us to to free ourselves from this compulsive sense of having to get something out of the practice, having to get somewhere quick. I remember when I first went there, I figured, well, I'll give this about five months. And then after I get enlightened, I can go back to Bangkok and have a good time. The American idea that if you really put your mind to it, you can get everything done quick. And then do what you want. So his own infinite patience helped us to appreciate the importance of giving ourselves time to grow naturally. To allow this to become a whole way of life. rather than just something you do and then move on to the next thing. And so as Ajahn Sumido was describing in many ways, his bringing the teaching down to the ordinary was the way of offering the completeness of the Eightfold Path. Buddhism being just whatever we're doing. However, despite this being a constant refrain, one often found oneself caught up in rather unordinary situations with him. there was that tinge of crazy wisdom which seemed to get a great deal of joy out of taking what would otherwise be a very routine uh, work party and drive us all beyond our means to near exhaustion and then a bit more. as a chance to to really see the 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 illusions of what we think we're capable of and the undue importance we give to any feeling of tiredness, any feeling of fatigue. To find out in these uh, serendipity explorations into communal work that with this energy of community, one can just keep going and somehow get charged up by it. So though he did emphasize the ordinary, he didn't leave us afraid to explore the extremes. to taste of both extremes, 
be able to discover more where the middle is. To begin to feel for ourselves when something is hot. So we put it down under our own steam, rather just in believing in what he's saying. There's a lot which one can go on and on talking about Ajahn Chah, as we will do this evening. <clears throat> one can do for many evenings a lifetime full of anecdotes. And perhaps I'll finish by saying that the very first thing which drew me towards him was the inner sense of trust that he pointed away a path, a practice, which led on. And what it led on to was fully exemplified in who he was. And I think this is perhaps one of the qualities which has inspired us as Westerners, those who met him and found, rather unexpectedly, the course of our lives changed. Perhaps this is one of the qualities which is reaching out beyond those who have met him personally. To a society which really needs to remember that. To really needs to remember this potential in each one of us. To make real what at first we only intuitively sense in the man who becomes our spiritual father. Or perhaps in just the teaching itself. So then the way of gratitude to, re to repay the debt to one's parents, is just simply to do what we came to do in the first place, to continue the, the seed of his reality totally offering ourselves to the reality of the teachings.
may each one of us in our own small way make this our offering to Ajahn Chah today on his birthday.
Opportunity uh, this evening to share uh, something uh, quite special, even though a lot of talk about it's the ordinariness of uh, Lumpur Cha's teachings, yet the feeling that comes to uh, my mind is uh, something quite special. Thinking last night, uh, Anajan Sumedho talking about uh, the point he made, how we tend to uh, highlight our faults. And if uh, we are praised for highlighting our faults, and uh, say all the negative things about us, and then what is considered to uh, know, be, be very honest, but if we talk about the, uh, any kind of special qualities we might have, or, uh, or anything that sounds or has a hint of self-aggrandizement or a self-exaltation, that <coughs> we are considered a braggart or boasting or big-headed or egotistical. And I feel uh, the honor, the privilege to have lived and been very close uh, to such a, a, a great uh, man, great teacher. And uh, that opportunity uh, feels very special. And if we have any element of uh, faith, in what we're doing, in what we're a part of in this human experience, this isolated incident that we find ourselves uh, involved in, then in these teachings it says, well, we had to do something good, something rather special to have these opportunities and these occasions. But to me that's not boasting, that is a faith and more faith and belief in what we are doing, what we are part of. And I remember he used to say to me sometimes, oh, 
Babakro, you and I have probably made some, uh, a lot of karma together. As, as some of you may know, I was his personal attendant for three years uh, during his, uh, the beginning, or let's say the serious beginnings of his illness to his uh, deterioration. Um, I think I probably was the last one to hear any words out of his mouth. And so it was a great uh, honor uh, to, to be uh, through this period because the honor is in uh, the opportunity to uh, see the Dhamma, the teaching. And no matter how great the being, uh, the personality, the charisma, that great uh, things, as we learn in these teachings, uh, are bound to, to fall, to deteriorate, uh, to march towards uh, 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 destruction. So as was said earlier, the in the ordinary way, that there is uh, no longer a, a teacher and to talk to us, to uh, prop us up, to give us uh, verbal teachings. And yet the greatest teaching uh, he is giving us is in the example, of course, that the way he lived his life and that shown just as the Buddha showed that uh, what is born uh, must grow old and eventually die. And I remember during a period when he was very bad and getting worse that I had a, a very a powerful insight, a very emotional insight. I had tears come to my eyes that uh, he was a bodhisattva. And the, the insight was that he was, that this this whole opportunity uh, was, was an offering. He was offering uh, his physical body, even though he wanted it to, to, to just let it go, and for, for people to uh, develop uh, a sense of gratitude, to make offerings, uh, to uh, do honor to what they had received in some way, some small way, to repay what uh, he had given to us. Sitting through the, the day and, and the evening and many joyous kind of uh, thoughts, memories of occasions uh, with him, uh, either uh, in, you know, his, uh, with just by himself or uh, with others, and the memories of being with Ajahn Sumedho and Ajahn Santachito and some of the other uh, senior uh, Western monks, some who have uh, moved on to other things, other lifestyles, and quite a, an overwhelming uh, sense of, of, of memories and one is to, to talk about uh, the things is uh, one can't really think of where to, to begin. So many stories and as Ajahn Santachitta was saying it could be fill up uh, many evenings uh, 
and, uh, and much more than that we see is, is a lifetime. The books and the books I'm sure that will continue to be published about him, those that uh, were close to him and those that weren't so close to him and, and think what he was. Getting these uh, stories from his quite well known in America, getting all sorts of Ajahn Chah stories. And a lot of them, when I hear back, I was at the actual story, and it's, it's quite amazing how the story changes by the time it gets published. <coughs> and in some book in America, <coughs> watered down and romanticized to the point that it does sound like some <coughs> great kind of Zen teaching or. Uh, something and it was said earlier that what was uh, very very ordinary at the time has turned into something quite special and and unique and uh, profound. I guess one of the most special times that I ever uh, had with him was when. Uh, on his second trip to the West uh, in 1979. And uh, I was uh, very privileged to uh, accompany him on this, uh, this journey here to Britain and then on to uh, America uh, and uh, Canada. And one of the very special qualities that he had, which has been mentioned, which I would like to, to highlight, was this ability to adapt, to fit in to any given situation without having a clue of what was, was maybe socially acceptable, what was, what was suitable to where he happened to be, but he had such such a, a an awareness, his his presence of of mind, of being able to be with any given situation, and uh, the people that there was there was an incredible sensitivity, a very heightened uh, sensitivity uh, to be very sensitive to who he was with. And, and, and in that there was a, a great humility, a, very, a humbleness that was, was truly inspiring and uh, heartwarming to, to see this willingness to adapt, to adjust to the situation and never in any way uh, making himself stand out or expecting a special treatment, although everywhere he went of course, people wanted to give him special treatment and were always apologizing and, and hoping that you know, he was finding it uh, all right and, and not having any problems or difficulties. And of course, he was always apologizing and hoping they were finding him all right. He wasn't doing anything to be offensive or anything to go against the existing uh, customs uh, and that he might uh, in any way uh, or annoy, irritate, or just uh, offend people, even in the, in the smallest way.
he would always ask when we were going to into any new situation, you know, what was uh, what was suitable, and uh, and kind of do's and don'ts. He would want to to kind of be told, and he would always you know humble himself to me. He says, "Well, you you tell me if I'm doing anything wrong," and uh, and and uh, so that you know he would he would know and he genuinely wanted. Uh, to know if there was anything that, that he, he might be doing, you know, to tell him of it. And uh, one of the things he, he picked up on was, uh, was handshaking. And uh, he didn't, he didn't, uh, uh, he was aware of it. And uh, he, he was aware of how to, to, uh, to either fit into it or not fit into it. And I remember one quite uh, humorous incident and we uh, were arriving at the, uh, we had been arrived from, we had spent two weeks here just before they started the move to Chithurst and then we went on to, uh, flew to Boston and was met by Jack Cornfield and some of the people from uh, IMS, Insight Meditation Society, went and spent about, I think about three or four days there, and then we were due to go to the West Coast to stay with my family uh, for two weeks and then come back for a retreat uh, at IMS after the, uh, the visit to the West Coast. And uh, so we, we arrived at the Seattle airport, got off the plane, and uh, um, we were met initially by uh, my, my parents and a few, uh, obviously, people who had been practicing that I didn't know they had an offering of flowers and things. And then you had to go through these, these kind of stages, as you do in airports, come out. And, and my sister and grandmother had, uh, were, were waiting out in the main uh, kind of uh, central lobby area of the, of the airport. And uh, this this was would have been, was my first time back after eight years. I had left, hadn't been back for for eight years. Or my mother and father had been to visit me after five years. And uh, I have this grandmother who is still alive, my mother's mother. And uh, they had uh, you know, drilled her uh, very extensively that you know I wasn't to be hugged. And uh, this was, was made quite, quite clear to her. And I found out later well, she, she, uh, she wasn't having anything to do with this. And so we, we come out to the final stage into this main lobby area. And, uh, uh, and you know, then walk in, you know, he carried a cane the whole time and very dignified. And coming out, he'd kind of stop sometimes and, and kind of hold his cane and just kind of take everything in. And, and then move on, and so uh, when we, we we came out into this uh, this this lobby area, and it was my sister, and there was my grandmother, and we walked for a bit, and all of a sudden my you know my grandmother stands out because she's making this beeline for me, and and obviously she was you know she was she was coming after me, <laughs> and. And, and the next thing I know, I, I was, she was in my arms, or I was in her arms. 
And, and, and then all I could do was to have, put her in my arms. And he was just kind of standing with his cane right next to me and just holding it and just kind of taking this in. And, I, and I've, got, I've got this grandmother around me. And I just turned to him. I says, this is my granny, I said. <laughs> <laughs> and and he was he was taking it in, and he 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 uh, yeah he wasn't shocked. I wouldn't say he was shocked, but he was uh, he was observing. <laughs> <laughs> he was learning <laughs> in this in this situation, and uh, but obviously not really. I wouldn't say was was ruffled in any way, and 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 accepted. Uh, and 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 what was what was very funny from a, a Western perspective that he didn't didn't hear, but my of course my mother had been drilled, and of course she was very obedient. She wasn't you know, she hadn't hugged me, and hadn't when she came to Thailand. And of course here's my granny, uh, and and she's getting to hug me. And and so as, she, as as I'm in my grandmother's arms, my mother was straight right there, standing right close, and she. Mother, I told you we were supposed to hug him. <laughs> Obviously very jealous and <laughs> upset that <laughs> Granny had got a hug and she didn't. <laughs> but he was very quick to, to pick up on, on you know, the, the situation, especially the, the Dummick uh, scene in, in America. And uh, what was was going on there? And people would ask him what he. I remember one occasion they asked him, "Well, what, what do you think, Arjun? What do you think of the of the uh, the Dhamma here in in America?" And he says, "Oh, he says, well, I, I don't see any Dhamma here in America yet." <laughs> <laughs> of course, they didn't quite know how to respond to that. And he he saw that there was enthusiasm, there was inspiration, but there still wasn't uh, a genuine uh, relinquishment of of you know, people were still toying with things and dabbling in things. He could really sense that, and that you know, a genuine practice. And he was quite uh, quick to point out that the the true heirs of the Dhamma and the ones that have preserved the Dhamma and the ones who have expounded the Dhamma has been the, the, the Samana Sangha, the, you know, the, the monastic order, because there was such, as most people know, such a, a, a big kind of lay teaching scene, meditation and teaching scene in, in America and, and still is. And so he he was was uh, he picked up on this quite uh, quite soon on and was was not not afraid to to make a point and of course he was he saw what uh, Americans needed and Western people in general because he was saying the same things in this country was uh, some kind of guidelines and precepts for their lives so he was really emphasizing sila wherever we went. Um, quite ruthlessly sometimes, and uh, quite difficult to uh, translate some of the things that he would say, especially around the third precept, 
he would be quite pointed. And uh, of course, in situations where it was, when we were here, and it was uh, between uh, Hanajan Sumedho and myself for translation, these situations, it seemed that things used to flow downhill quite quickly when those kind of more difficult translations used to come. So Hanajan would invite me to, uh, to translate in some of these uh, difficult situations. And at IMS on the retreat, when he was, uh, after we'd returned from Seattle and on our kind of return journey, the 10 days at, at, at Barry at this uh, retreat and then returning to uh, here to uh, Britain for another week and then returning to Thailand, he gave this uh, long uh, talk on the, the five precepts and spent quite a, a long time talking about each, each precept. And uh, he and was, was very emphatic in the importance of it and was really uncompromising in, in the way he was talking about them. And he, a, at the end of it then, he, he, he said, uh, and he would always, it was a repeated thing, he'd always excuse himself. He'd say, which means, please, please forgive me or please excuse me. Or, you know, if you found this offensive in this situation, this is what he said, but he added something. And uh, it was quite lovely to translate. Uh, and, and, and when I translated, of course, the whole uh, room just burst into, into laughter. What he said, he said, he says, please forgive me, he says, but he says, you can't blame me, don't blame me. If you're going to blame anybody, he says, blame the Buddha, he told me to say it, he said. <laughs> And which was, was a, a very lovely way of, of pointing to, of course, the inheritance of, of, the, of the path of the teaching uh, that, uh, that we, we have and, and still have very alive and, and, uh, uh, in, in uh, our present uh, time. Many people are, uh, I think, have uh, doubts. His illness, of course, created a, a lot of doubts in people's minds. Remember the period that I looked after him was very close and saw things that I probably will, will never repeat to, to anybody or only a few of, of his, his phase of, of uh, when he was going through this phase of uh, degeneration, his, his physical uh, body and his faculties starting to, to fade. And I don't think I ever once had any, any real doubts, any personal uh, doubts. And because there was, it was such uh, an honor to be serving uh, to be really uh, giving to someone who you felt uh, a, such a deep, uh, intimate sense of, of gratitude and uh, to have having been with and and what he had uh, you know put up with to uh, and been to uh, to help you and, and put up with all of your faults and shortcomings and things that such a, a privilege to be able to, in some way, repay. 
and and serve him in 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 this way. And as I was saying earlier, the the, the great teaching, of course, is that uh, is that you know bodies do grow old and and die. And we can think, well, if he's enlightened, if he was a true master, then uh, you know, why at, at such a, for most masters, they live to the ripe old age of 80 or 90, why at, in his uh, mid-60s, or early 60s, did he uh, have such a, uh, a, uh, a serious illness to completely uh, take him to being uh, incapacitated incapable of, of anything other than being just like a helpless uh, infant. And uh, he, he used to say himself, just before his, the final, uh, before he, he stopped speaking, he said it was his, his karma. Now this was, was, he was the heir, as we chant, uh, quite often the heir to his karma. There was, you say, what the karma was. Uh, but was very quick to point out that this was his, what he had inherited, this uh, particular uh, illness and things that had uh, uh, come his, his way. Once he had completely kind of uh, become almost very pacified to this, this illness, there was such a, a joy that uh, I'm sure many of you have heard described <coughs> over the last number of years, uh, because and, and uh, people that have gone to Thailand and actually seen him, the kind of uh, the love and the, the care that is, is given to look after him uh, brings out uh, qualities that I personally can't really see there's any other way uh, that they can be brought out, like they brought me in, in very much in touch with uh, paternal and maternal instincts, you know, to really care and, and in, in, for someone, to look after someone. And it's not easy just to, you just can't do that with, with anybody. And, and this is one of the qualities that he brought out when he was still very well and it continues to bring out in people now that he is, is incredibly ill, is, is, is to bring out these uh, genuine human qualities of, of caring, looking after. And they're running down the road, <laughs> two or three of them. And because when we care for someone else, when we, when we genuinely give, it, give ourselves for someone else's benefit, of course we have to give up self. We have to give up selfishness and cultivate selflessness. And this he truly brought out in, in many of his, his disciples uh, and, and was the living example in the way that he behaved, the way that he, his impeccability 
was, uh, was a genuine inspiration. Any time there would be a situation where there would be a monk senior to him, uh, the honor and the, the reverence that he would show, he would, he would, as he was getting on in years, as, as you'll start to notice some of us as we get on in years, that our bows aren't as perfect as they used to be. And you start to get into this kind of old uh, lumpur kind of bow where you just kind of go about halfway down and your fingers come up and, and to touch your eyebrows because you can't quite get your head down or you're too, too getting a bit too creaky to, to put it down. And, and then he, he uh, uh, but when, when a, a senior monk would come, he, he, he would bow absolutely beautifully, this kind of perfect prostration. And not just to show off, because that's he wanted to, to he was, he was you know, giving himself completely, totally and completely, to paying respects to, to this, uh, this particular uh, monk who was senior to him. And in many situations were just uh, monks who lived in towns and, and cities and were study monks, were not really practice monks, and so, whom many of his disciples I know uh, would, uh, would find that difficult. And it was kind of like the old thing used to have that, you know, my dad can beat up your dad and you wouldn't want to see your dad kind of being, you know, having to kind of humble himself to, to somebody else. And yet in the religious life this is, is very important and he would demonstrate that through his, his own wonderful and, and beautiful uh, example and would always encourage that when monks would come that weren't, uh, were junior to him, uh, that he would always uh, ensure that his disciples uh, did pay due respect and, and uh, honor and reverence to those uh, senior monks that would be, would be visiting. So he was absolutely impeccable with with the form and with his, uh, his the way that he um, demonstrated this through his own uh, living example. I guess one final thing I could I could say that made a very strong impression, and it wasn't I didn't actually experience it. It was his on his first trip uh, to to the West here to to Britain, and I believe they went to to France as well. Uh, when uh, John Sumedho accompanied him on this this particular journey, and when he returned, uh, he. Um, they did a, wrote a book. He'd uh, kept a diary, and uh, and uh, in in the in the introduction uh, to to the book, in his diary, he was he in one particular part that, that really stood. He was writing about you know, flying on this airplane and and going across the uh, the, the continents and. And uh, to uh, to come to the United Kingdom, and he said. He said the o- the only thing that it, that has changed, he said, is 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 sights, sounds, smells, uh, tastes, and and uh, sensations. You know the the five senses, 
uh, have changed. He says, but the heart, he says, is, is bhogati. And bhogati is a, actually a Pali word that, uh, that means, uh, is, is like natural or normality or ordinary. As uh, John Sumedha was speaking of earlier, it was, a, it was a word that he used repeatedly in, uh, in his, uh, his talks, his teachings, to Haimanyu uh, Bhogate. And you keep hearing this word uh, in Pali, it's Pakate. And it is, it is like natural. It is uh, sometimes translated, I think, as original. And they talk about the Bhagati Sila, it's like original Sila in, uh, in, in the, the scriptures. And, and this really made a very strong impression in my mind that he was talking about the changing of, of what you see, what you hear, smell, uh, taste and touch. But the heart remains stable and in its ordinary or, or normal uh, original state. And, uh, and that there was, uh, there was you know, no problems, that uh, things arose and passed away. And, but the, uh, the, the heart remained in this uh, state of, of bhagati. So um, I feel inspired to, to sit up here for a long time this evening, and that's probably why I have to get down and to give uh, the other bhikkhus the, the opportunity to, uh, to, to say a few words. And uh, in, in closing, then, the, the, uh, as I think all of us are uh, aware of the way that we can really do honor and reverence uh, to a great master and teacher is to, of course, follow uh, his example. <coughs> 